Hi, and welcome to the IBM Fast Track Your Data podcast series. I'm Des Blanchfield, and I'm your host. And today, well, I should say tonight, it's about 11 o'clock at night, I have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by Lillian Pearson. Lillian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Des. I'm excited about this. Oh, it's great to have you. We've been chatting for a while on Twitter about doing these. And um, so I should just highlight for folk listening that uh, it's about 12.30 midnight here in Sydney. So I'm guessing it's about 9.30 p.m. your time in, in Thailand. Is that right? Yeah, it is. It is. It's nice to be able to catch this at the end of the day. And uh, thanks for fitting me in so fast. Oh, not at all. I really appreciate you responding so quickly. So a quick intro. Um, you're huge on social media, in particular Twitter, where your um, handle is uh, at uh, Big Data Gal. Um, you've got your own website and you do training courses. You've got a website, which I'll mention here, uh, uh, www.data-mania.com, where you describe <laughs> uh, your goal as uh, being the challenge of making people awesome at finding and communicating data sites. Um, and I read your background on your website. You you described yourself as having become a data scientist from a career that was in environmental engineering and that effectively you taught yourself coding and uh, statistics that you needed to do data science uh, and that you moved into data science because you had an innate interest in finding hidden answers in data. Uh, that must have been a pretty significant transition from what you were doing prior to it, was it? Um. It was, but it was a natural transition because even when I before I graduated from um, engineering school, I was working as an intern, and in my first project as an environmental engineering intern was to um, develop a standard that would determine whether or not a like a bioremediation, a lake bioremediation um, project had actually been effective and then after that they wanted me to build a database system where everyone could collaborate and enter their data into the same um, same system for um, oil and gas cleanup projects and then I was doing all this GIS and started doing automation work in GIS um, that was before I even graduated graduated um, engineering school so although it's a big gap I mean, between environmental engineering design work and data science, there's a lot of uh, areas that are kind of overlapping. So, yeah. And those are the areas I was always better at in environmental engineering. So there was some work to make the transition, but it wasn't a huge jump. It's interesting. I, I, I don't think I've met a single person who's in data science in any form, whether it's from an engineering background or from a statistical background or just a pure math background, who's actually had the exact same pathway. Uh, you, so you mentioned you originally came from, from an engineering background and particularly uh, in environment, environmental engineering. Um, but then in your, in your website, you talk about uh, the shift being driven by the, the 2008 housing uh, bubble collapse, or GFC as the rest of us in the world call it, and uh, that you wanted to move into an area of work where uh, essentially it offered abundant opportunities to do interesting and fun things and be a bit more flexible. And, uh, and I remember seeing a quote there that you said something to the effect that you wanted to escape the nine to five working in office space. What kind, what kind of, I mean, other than the GFC piece, which obviously was a big push, was there a particular aha moment or a eureka moment where you just sat there and thought, you know, this is this is not for me. I want to do something different. Well, yeah, I was um, I was doing design work in environmental engineering, and 
Um, things had slowed down a lot in, in the sector because of the housing bubble collapse. I don't know that they've even recovered at this point. And um, yeah, it was during that time, you know, I wasn't busy. I wasn't busy at work. And when I have just idle hands, I start thinking, you know, like I, I just wanted to be uh, more engaged. I felt like I was wasting my potential right. because I didn't have enough work. And so I started thinking about, you know, what other things could I do with my background? And that actually, that led me into patent. Like I wanted to do patent law. So I went to law school oh, wow. um, thinking that that would be another. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was thinking it would be something that would like, I could, that would fully utilize my background. I could just do an, you know, an add on and get a law degree and then do something that would be allowed me to work internationally. But then I found out what working in law is like, and I decided that wasn't a good way. And I fell into, yeah, I'm not yeah, surprised. yeah. <laughs> it's not. But I didn't like working in law. Yeah, no, yeah I know. Yeah, I know. That's a common thing. You you also talked about on your blog. I was reading that you um, you approached your employer at the time to provide you training in, in in languages like Python and and R scripting and and a bit of background in stats and so forth, so you could you could solve more complex problems using uh, traditional data science methods. Uh, but at the same time, you, you were effectively establishing your own business, Data Mania, as a side gig. Um, what was the response to your to your boss at the time when you sort of said, "I want to learn more around the the sort of the traditional data science methods and 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 learn some languages"? Okay, yeah. So that actually happened after um, I I transitioned from an environmental engineering role and I got a job doing GIS for development and support services uh, for local government and then. But they immediately had me in a business intelligence data analytics role, developing this data analytics project. And then when I said I want to learn Python and R so I could develop custom scripts for the team, I mean, they had absolutely no hesitation. And it was kind of a a benefit um, that was included with the job anyway. So they were just really happy to have me doing that. And um yeah, and then it was it was wonderful because once I learned once I learned how to do different types of scripting and analysis, then I could just you know automate a lot of the work that I they had me doing manually, and then just make sure I have uh, uh, correct uh, like procedures for checking in case there had been changes that were made in the workflow prior to the automation. But then um, once I had automated a lot of the work I was doing, then my bosses <laughs> had me start building things that. that um, either could automate some of the stuff they were doing or uh, just give them a level of uh, intelligence, like a lever, level of information that they weren't, right. didn't have. Yeah. You know? and, and were you building, at the time, I mean, I, you know, when we talk about writing things in, in scripting languages like Python and R, we're often sort of building things from ground up. Did you find yourself building modules and tools that you just started to build a library of, of, of capability and then grow on that or did you find yourself having to solve each problem uniquely every single time um mostly i was building scripts that solved specific problems in other cases i was scripting up modules that were already built because um right i mean i so actually i learned python through learning arcpy Okay. Because it, it um, so it's, yeah, so it's like a Python scripting for ArcGIS. So in those cases, I was using, I was using, um, I was 
using modules that were already built yeah. and scripting yeah. them together. So it was kind of both. It's Does that fun, answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. It's a fun challenge, isn't it? Because you know, often we're solving things that people might have solved in in part, but but what I love about the sort of things that we do, and I'm sure it's the same for you, um, many times we're sitting there, we're, we're kind of one of the first people to solve the problem from that particular angle or that particular position, and I, I get quite a buzz out of that myself. You, um, so you take, let's, you know, if we move forward a couple of years, you, you'd moved out of your sort of day job, you'd, you'd, you were working on data mania, uh, data mania full time, and then uh, from what I understand, you, you took off and did some travelling and, and ended up in Southeast Asia. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and sort of how that progressed? And, and from what I understand, you then went and, and got married and, and uh, settled down and, and now have a beautiful baby girl. Yeah, so um, I already loved travelling and um, it really made it a lot easier for me to actually leave the States at the beginning because it was lower financial overhead. So when I quit my job, it was like, okay, I didn't have to make as much money at first and I could um, build my business. And so that was nice. And then I traveled. Um, I lived a bunch of different places. I mean, I was probably, I don't know how many countries I was, you know, traveling a lot and I got kind of worn out of it on it right. and felt like I wanted to, I thought at a certain point I thought, you know, like, Maybe I'll just go back to the United States because it's quality of life. You know, I wanted to have a certain quality of life. And I thought maybe, but then I thought, well, okay, where could I go that if I'm willing to, I was able to spend the amount of, you know, like pay U.S. rates for everything. So where would I go that I could have the quality of life, a better quality of life? And so I actually um, came to, so I'm on an island in Thailand and I'd been here before and I knew it's not, it's not super, um, it's not always super inexpensive, but I just love it here. And so I thought, well, I'll just go back to Koh Samui and, um, see about settling down there. And then I came here and, you know, it's just, it's got everything I need. And then I met my husband and <laughs> yeah, now, I mean, now we have two properties here and a baby and I'm pretty much settled here, but then I'm traveling all the time for work for sure <laughs> it sounds like you've got uh, a dream life that some of us would just uh would give uh, a left lung for i um you know <laughs> we, we've got a great life here in, in australia and sydney as well but uh it sounds like your part of the world uh, beats us hands down you obviously end up in a scenario where you you, you effectively work remotely for for most of what you do how do you find that that whole challenge of, of sort of being a remote worker and, and, and such in that you're, you know, in this beautiful remote space in the world, but most of your clients are probably outside of country or, or, or international? Um, you mean, I don't in what aspect? Do you, uh, you know, do you find it easy to sort of, you know, uh, A, find the clients, I guess, but B, also just communicate with the clients and liaise with them, given they're probably in different regions, different time zones? Um in in the general yeah. sense, you know, because in my case, for example, like, you know, I, I probably live three different time zones. I've got the Australian uh, Eastern Seaboard, then I've got South Australia, which is, you know, two and a half hours behind. And then I've got Western Australia, which is three hours behind. I, I've got um, people in Europe and people in the UK that are 14, 15 hours behind. Yeah. You know, in the US, I've got 
um, East Coast, Central Time, Mountain Time, US Time. And so I've got this constant challenge of <laughs> juggling family life, my personal life, keeping fit, eating well, sleeping sensibly, and then actually still getting up at 3.30 in the morning to do uh, meetings with folk like our friends at IBM. So I'm imagining you've probably got a similar challenge in that you know you, you create content and training material for your website, but you also must have people around the world that you liaise with, and you're almost this permanently switched on remote worker, I guess. Well, okay. So, um, I've gotten real, I've been very lucky in that my clients have um, been very, you know, hands off and most of the work, um, unless it's getting close to when I have to deliver a product, we don't actually have meetings. It's just, I have deadlines coming up in a few months and I just deliver the products via email. So, um, for the most part, I don't really have much of a scheduling conflict and, I tend to actually um, work later just because my husband, he works on U.S. hours. Okay. Um, but actually, yeah, and so I've been very lucky actually because in this, in this sense, I haven't actually looked for, um, looked for work. Like none of the, you know, it's just been one thing led to another and I've found jobs. And so that's been great. But I'm actually now starting to look for cons- contract, like um, consultant work. Yeah. And, and. I haven't, I haven't sought work in so long and it's kind of, um, it's a fun challenge, yes. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay, should I, it's like, it's, it's very different. Um, but, and I think people are pretty understanding. I don't know. I haven't gone very far down that route cause I've got so much work already to do, but I'd like to be doing consulting work and it just doesn't, you know, um, just only doing the work that comes to you sometimes. I think I want to do some other types of work. So yeah, it's easy to know. get pigeonholed. <laughs> I find that if I if I do that for a while, I get pigeonholed into an area, and then all of a sudden I realize I probably didn't want to go down that route in the first place. Exactly. Um, yeah, like um, my editor, who I love, love, love to work with. She's a wonderful lady, and she was saying, "Oh, you can write another book," and I just thought, you know what? Like, I can write another book. But I don't, I want to do consulting, you know, I want to do data science consulting work. And if I say yes to this book deal, then I'm not going to be able to do that um, because I'll be busy. So I just said, okay, even though I don't have any like consulting work lined up, I just said, I can't take the book deal because I've got to, like, my goal is to move in a different direction instead of, you know, just always, um, always, I want to be doing not just teaching you know, speaking about your book, um, I'd love you to give it a plug. You you wrote a book on data science. Tell us a bit about that. Oh, data science for dummies. Um, I'm really excited. The second edition just came out a few months ago and it's, I wrote it, um, to be a guidebook to people who are getting into data science or maybe working in a small area of analytics or something to give them a broader overview of the entire data space. Right. And, um, yeah, I just added a bunch of uh, sections on machine learning and artificial intelligence and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's how, how did you come to dummies. how did you come to write a, a dummy's guide on data science in the first place? Just out of interest. <laughs> oh, it was the most awesome experience ever. I was I was boarding a plane from Bangkok to Bali, which is Bali is like one of I'd never been. You know, it's one of my dream destinations and. I got this random email right before I shut off my phone and, and it was an editor asking if I wanted to, you know, with the whole thing, like, we'll pay you this much and like, this is your timeline and do you want to write a book? 
<laughs> wow. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And so then it was just, you know, as soon as I got off the plane, I was like, yeah, okay, I want to write a book. Yeah, I want to write this book for sure. So that's just how it happened. <laughs> that's amazing. It's funny how many how many things in our lives happen like that, where the timing's just right and it, and it feels right, and other times things just don't feel right. I, I love your... Um, pink unicorn uh, logo by the way but oh, uh, i suspect that it might get challenged a little bit uh, when we're in munich in a week's time around the mythical data scientist unicorn topic but anyway um but i do love it it's pretty cool i i, I hope that you're going to bring out a a line of clothing with a with that uh, logo on it at some stage uh i'll proudly wear a pink unicorn on the front of a t-shirt um now we're Thank both you. we're both heading to uh, munich in, in a week's time, which I'm, I'm really excited about because we get to finally meet in person after sharing tweets and retweets and comments and whatnot. Um, so I wanted to give a little shout out to the event we're heading over to. And then I've got a bunch of questions I'd love to get your insights and thoughts on if that's okay with you. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so the event is, um, it's called Fast Track Your Data. It's uh, in Munich. It's, uh, it's an IBM event. It's on June the 22nd. And if folk listening uh, want to find out more, they simply just jump on their favorite search engine and search for the phrase fast track your data. Um, and the, the catch line is secure your competitive advantage with machine learning. And they've got a hashtag, which is uh, hash IBM ML. They, they claim that it's going to be eight hours. It'll change your life, whether you're there in person or live streamed online and, and or participating in some of the breakout sessions in person or digitally. And they've got uh, an amazing uh, TV media personality and news anchor, um, Kate Silverton, hosting it. It's an interesting uh, new format, in fact, because unlike some of their mega events they host in Las Vegas or New York, such as the World of Watson or, or Interconnect and so forth, which I've been privileged to go to, this is more like a live TV show that runs for eight hours with different breakouts. And they've got some amazing folk coming from the IBM team, which I'm looking forward to catching up with. Uh, Rob Thomas, who's the uh, general manager of IBM Analytics Platform. Mark Altshuler, uh, who's the GM for IBM Business Analytics. Seth Dobrin, VP of, uh, and, and I think he's also the, the CDO for IBM Analytics, IBM Analytics, that is, sorry. Um, Dinesh uh, uh, Namal, who's the VP for uh, the IBM Analytics Development. Um, and of course, the... Um, uh, famous Hillary Mason, who's a founder and data scientist at uh, Fast Forward Labs and formerly at Bitly. Uh, yourself, of course, which is fantastic, and yours truly. I'm looking forward to being there. And the event itself, just quickly, the topics they're talking about, they want, they're want they going to be covering things like um, hybrid data management, unified governance, data analytics and visualization, data science, and the big topics, machine learning. And I was hoping that we could sort of do speed dating 60 seconds or less questions, if you're comfortable with that, on six or seven key points that uh, I, I've sort of gleaned from the event and what they're looking to cover, because I'm, I'm really keen to get your thoughts and insights on them. Um, are you comfortable doing speed dating 60-second responses to some of these? Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. A bit of fun. So the first one, just to read through, is, is, is what your take on the unicorn data scientist meme is um, and, and just the general topic of, of, you know, I think the aim for this event is to kind of dispel this myth, mythical beast of a unicorn data scientist and, and, and talk about what they are. But what's your general take in 60 seconds or less uh, on, on that whole unicorn data scientist meme? Uh, okay, so I, did, I wasn't aware that, that we were going to be trying to dispel the myth, um, but so when I saw this question, I did just a real quick internet search, and I found a quote from International Data Corporation. They came out with a quote in 2014 that said, um, "There's 
18.5 million people in the global workforce that know how to code, but actually 7.5, million of those people are um, are just coding hobbyists. So what it really comes down to is 0.3% of the global workforce knows how to code. And if you think about data science, um, when you put it in perspective of that, data science is more than just coding. You also have to be, you know, really good at math and statistics and have a subject matter expertise um, in a, you know, particular area. So it's far less than 0.3% of the global workforce. So I think that um, it's not completely outrageous to equate um, data science with the mythical unicorn. I love that. I love the fact you've backed it up with statistics that that guarantees the evidence that you're a data scientist. Um, I don't know we're necessarily necessarily going to dispel the entire myth, but I think the aim is to highlight that you know there's this meme that um, data scientists are unicorns, and, and and absolutely you're right. They are often difficult to find. Um, but I, I think one of the challenges around this concept of, of treating the idea of a data scientist as a unicorn is that oftentimes we've actually got somebody who's bordering on on uh, data science capabilities inside our organizations and we just need to kind of give them the right tools and support and training which i, I think is evidenced by your own background um and then they can Absolutely. do you know great things right so you're right i do yeah i mean i think that it's like not even the idea of finding these people with phds in in computer science and filling all the data it's not going to happen you're never going to find enough phds in computer science to fill all the data science positions in the world but you can equip the working professionals that know what they're doing in their own field with, you know, basic coding and, and analytical skills enough that they can generate value. And I think that's the only way to skin the cat because you're not going to get you're not going to get the numbers that are required from from these, you know, Ph.D. and stats and, and stuff like that. It's kind of ridiculous, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and not only that, but I found in my own experience that when I go into companies and we start talking about building a practice in data science of any form, uh, I, it often reminds me of coming across a bank at one point when they had a room full of COBOL programmers that they effectively kept in the dark and threw food to occasionally to keep alive. <laughs> um, and, and yet, you know, in, in my experience, if we find somebody with any kind of um, SME, you know, subject matter expertise in the business, it's far easier to give them the skills and tools and so forth to, to do data science type uh, work than to take someone who comes from a pure analytical background or, or pure actuarial background and teach them Absolutely. The, the vertical, right? So, you know, as you said, you know, taking a PhD and saying, welcome to insurance or wealth management or banking, you've got to figure that out. It's like, well, no, actually, we're better off finding someone with 30 years of banking and teaching them how to, to, to use a, a studio or, or, you know, the data science experience from IBM. No, I love that. That's a great takeaway. Um, second question then, uh, and, and just to read through. So the question is, you know, do you think data science is a team sport? Yes, no, maybe why? Um, what's your 60-second takeaway on the idea? Is, is data science a team sport or, or are lone wolves still a necessity? I think that, gen like, generating organizational value from data is a team sport. And I think that this all comes back to collab collaboration and collaborating across a platform. Um, when organizations set up data science platforms where data engineers and data scientists and application developers can collaborate, um, they, they effectively reduce a lot of redundancies in their system where people are recreating the wheel, you know, at their own station and they make their workflows a lot more efficient. 
And um, so in that sense, I would say that data science is a team sport. Great stuff. Third question, um, and just to read through. So you, I'm keen to get your thoughts on hybrid data management. And, and essentially, this is the, the sort of the topic between on-premises uh, and hosted environments and data versus uh, sort of in cloud and the types of challenges that we might come across in that juggle of keeping some environments on-premises and particularly data and then at the same time using in-cloud services, whether it's machine learning and the IBM uh, uh, Bluemix Watson cloud platform with their ML uh, capability. Um, your short take on 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 and general thoughts on the hybrid data management challenge with sort of on-premises and cloud, if you would. Well, I think hybrid data management makes a lot of sense. And I'm no security expert, but I know enough about it to know that organizational leaders are not ready to um, host certain data sets on the cloud. Even if the cloud is more secure, um, there's a lot of hesitation there, and I don't know that that's going to go anywhere in the foreseeable future. However, there are um, a lot of products and services that an organization will not be able to develop and offer if they don't run um, cloud services. It's really a handicap not to run certain portions of your work on the cloud. So I think the idea of having hybrid data management really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, great. And I, I, I totally agree with the, the, the point there in that, you know, the the challenge, uh, you know, from the board and CEO downwards, the challenge to even just grasp some of the concepts that people are having to, to deal with. Now, I, I had this phrase a while ago that I'll throw at you where um, I was asked to describe the, the general state of the nation. And I said, look, I think the world we live in now, particularly for CEOs more than any and the teams that support them, uh, is, is so disruptive that we're, you know, the rate of change and the pace of change is such that we're having to sprint just to keep up but the challenge is for most organizations they're having to sprint in multiple races at the same time and often in different directions and so even just grasping the, the challenge of do i stay on premises or do i go to cloud is a heady undertaking in any sense let alone what do i do with the data between them all um so i, I you're absolutely right it's, it's it's going to have to be a hybrid mix and and i don't know that anyone's got the silver bullet on it yet my next question for you is um, around data governance, um, in particular, uh, it, its impact on innovation. Um, and the, the question is, you know, do you think that data governance drives innovation? You know, yes, no, maybe why? Um, and specifically, uh, when I talk about innovation, I'm, I'm keen to get your insights on, you know, uh, whether we think that um, appropriately applied data governance and control around data might stymie uh, uh, people's access to that data and, and ability to innovate or, you know, whether it should it just be unconstrained and, and what that might mean. But in short, you know, does data governance drive innovation in your, in your mind? Um, I think that any time that someone's forced to work and produce great results um, under a set of external pressures, uh, they have to have a lot of ingenuity. And so uh, stricter data governance standards um, are going to force uh, force people, force organizations to have more innovative solutions. I do know that there are some really innovative tools that are being developed to um, right now to help companies um, meet increasingly strict data governance standards. So I guess... Um, <laughs> I, 
it's a curly one. It's a curly question. Yeah, isn't it? personally, I'm not for. I like. I don't like. Um, you know, control standards, although they're necessary. I never like to feel controlled. Um, but in that in that same token, um, when you put when you increase restrictions on a certain space, it does drive innovation. It does because people have to produce great results despite the fact that they have more restrictions. So they have to find more clever ways of doing it, which is what they're doing with these new tools. It's interesting you say that because that's actually um, a similar uh, response that I had in a conversation today uh, over a lunchtime phone call where uh, somebody in federal government was saying that they're finding that their teams are just coming up with new weird and quirky ways to solve problems because the hands are tied. And this person comes from a, a, a commercial background and they've just moved into government in a CIO role. And they were quite astounded. They said, I, I can't believe how creative these folk are in federal government because in an enterprise world, we, we kind of just got lazy. And I said, well, yeah, I, th I think as you've just said, when you are constrained in some ways, you have to get creative. You have to think differently and, and it forces you to, to think long and hard about what data you've got access to and how you're using it and, and where it's going to. Exactly. And I think data governance is becoming, you know, we were talking before we hit record here, but just to recap, like, you know, when we think about data protection in general, particularly with, uh, uh, you know, the historical environments uh, or frameworks like, sorry, um, the the European and, and American data shield, for example, and it has a few quirks where Switzerland wanted their own little twist on it uh, and, and, and the way that data is treated between America and Switzerland inside the EU-US data shield framework. And then we've uh, in Australia, we've had since 1918 very strict uh, privacy laws around um, protection of people and consumers and, and, and so forth, but specifically around the data and the treatment of their data around them. So privacy with regard to their, you know, their name and their phone number and so forth. And obviously it's been modified with technology. And of late, we now have this notifiable breach uh, um, uh, addition to it where if there's any form of data breach or any form of risk around your data, the organization mm -hmm. not only has to notify you, but also the community people around you and the, the you know, society as a whole, so that you can make an informed decision about whether you've been impacted or not and then pursue them in various ways. And we've now seen this tsunami of, of, of impact. Um, I don't think the world's fully appreciated that the, the European uh, General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, I think this is going to be bigger than Y2K, and that is that come March 25th, 2018, when it's actually put into force, uh, organizations could be impacted up to 20-odd million euros, I think it is, per person per incident, or up to, I think it's 4% of a year's turnover. So it's a non-trivial impact that could break companies if they're not engineered uh, or geared towards it. Uh, and I think that's going to have to drive innovation in a whole range of ways because they're going to be forced to go back and look at what data they've kept, why they're keeping it, what's on tape, what's on disk, what's in the system, what's held in memory, what's in apps, who's got, you know, the whole supply chain challenge of where's data moving. Uh, so I agree mm. with you. I think it's going to definitely drive innovation and I, I can't wait to talk about it more when we catch up next week with the, the team <laughs> at IBM. Um, flowing on from that, the topic of data security um, Particularly in the context of collaboration, I, I find all kinds of interesting responses to this when we talk about collaboration in general around the world, because people have very differing, uh, different views on what collaboration is or is not. But in your view, you know, what does data security mean in the context of collaboration? To me, it means that you need to have a very secure um, collaboration platform. Because any sort of peer-to-peer -peer collaboration across a data science platform um, re 
it, it brings in risk for it brings in risk for each um, technology component that um, is being is being utilized across the platform, and so um, without securing the platform, yeah. Um, well, the collaboration becomes uh, more difficult the tighter the security is, right? But then at the same time, uh, you've got to kind of open things up enough that people can share data and share models and share views and even scripts and tools, I guess, don't they? Well, I'm just speaking from, I had a client and I helped with the um, platform and I don't want to speak like, I want to, I guess I'll keep that, uh, like who it is, anonymous. Of course. But, yeah. Like, so what they were doing was they actually used the, um, they used the same security protocols that were inherent in um, each of the um, each of the technologies that the platform integrated, and they just integrated the security protocols as well into right. the overall data science platform, so that it was not just secure in the same same way that it would be, um, you know, just in a native environment. But then it would be having like double, triple. Um, quadruple security because it had all of the security protocols stacked up um, inside this data science platform. And the thing about it is, is that there's a lot of benefit that can come from working collaboratively and having your teams sharing the results and not um, trying to recreate the wheel for every project that they work on. Um, but without having the security covered, like having a secure platform, the, the uh, benefits are negated by the risk, so Definitely. it's really important to have a very secure platform. And 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 um, I think it was about a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago, we saw an incident, um, well, a series of incidents, actually, a global roll rollout of risk in that, uh, for a particular reason, which I won't go into now because it's still kind of under investigation, some 47,500 MongoDB backends uh, fronted by SSL, so people thought they were secure because they were encrypted, and that it wasn't visible. But their MongoDB backends were exposed to the entire world with no username and password, and the ports were wide open. Oh, and my it, gosh. And, yeah, and it turned out that it was just, you know, I mean, there's, there's a whole range of reasons I won't bore people with, but something really simple around the access and the control of that environment. And we're talking about live systems and airports and police departments and banks and, and not just, you know, uh, forums where kids talking about games, but, you know, really big systems and breaches of, of tens if not hundreds of millions of records. And and mm. what happened was was a number of people found it at the same time because it was such a big number of sites that some, some enterprising person went and scripted up this process of logging in, doing a dump of the entire MongoDB environments and all the tables in there, and then blowing them away and putting a message saying, if you want to get your data back, put some money in this uh, Bitcoin address. And, and I'm sure they cleaned up for a few people that did pay. Uh, but we're talking like you know, nearly 50,000 in, and it was a period of like two or three days at the most when these were found, and then you could just script up looking for them. And I think the challenge of, of information security management, or ISM as we generally refer to it, you're right. You've got to start from your, your traditional legacy systems and the, and the business practices you've got internally and all the ITIL and, 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 and COBIT-style frameworks and methodologies that come into that and then build on top of it. So data science doesn't get a get-out-of-jail card just to behave badly. But at the same time, I think there's got to be some... Uh, particular focus on what you're moving and why you're moving and how you collaborate. So particularly when you're mm -hmm. moving it into, say, a, a SaaS-based platform like the the data science experience platform from IBM, 
where you might take some data from an existing system and move it up into IBM's cloud. Uh, you might have to apply some of your own governance and security controls, but you can then also assume to a certain point, but you know you want to double check that the configuration of your DSX account is going to A, meet your requirements internally of your ISM requirements for your IT guys in the CIO's office, but also that you know, you're kind of using the DSX's capabilities. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to collaborate. Um, next question for you then. Uh, it's a slightly over the uh, uh, long-term one as far as um, the topic of data. Things are moving so fast, and and you know people talk about the amount of, da- amount of data that's been created in a very short period of time, and there's all this anecdotal discussion about uh, how you know data is exploding. And when we look at things like the Internet of Things, there's plenty of evidence that if we put billions of sensors everywhere, we're going to end up with not just petabytes but exabytes of data. And I love the example of airplanes are one of my favorite examples where when the Dreamliner 787 came out it was announced that that each time the airplane flew no matter how long the flight on average it created half a terabyte of data and I so I did some math and it turned out there's 87,400 flights a day just in the domestic airspace in the USA alone and so if you take 87,400 flights a day and and basically divide it by half to get what half a terabyte works out that's 43 and a half petabytes of data a day Assuming that every aeroplane was running the same sort of, you know, BIOS, if you like, quote unquote, as the Dreamliner 787 some six years ago. Now, not to be outdone, Airbus went and created an aeroplane called the A330-1000, and it's got 10,000 sensors and produces 2.5 terabytes of data a day. So doing the same math of 87,400 flights a day just in the domestic (laughs) airspace, you end up with 220 petabytes of raw data a day just of domestic flights in the US. So we know there is evidence of of this Cambrian-like explosion of data. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to sort of get your insight into, to, in short, where you think data is going to take us in the next year and a half. Because in many ways, people ask me what this runaway freight train called data is going to do to the world. Um, are we going to just drown in it? Um, or are we going to have something similar to the IP address issue where IP address space in, in IP version 4 just ran out? And now we're desperately trying to roll out IP version 6 from a 32-bit to a 64-bit address space. Um, where do you see us going in the next 12 to 18 months or just around the general topic of data and what it's going to do to the world? And, and, and you know, is it good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? Gosh. Um, okay, so when I originally saw this question, I thought about all the work that's being done in the deep learning space. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with TensorFlow. It's Google's deep yep. learning library. Yeah, and so actually Google... Um, the Google team is actually working with TensorFlow 2.0 now. They've already moved past TensorFlow. And um, a lot of new um, services are being offered that are driven yeah. by neural networks. And so for me, I think um, just seeing that there's just going to be an increasing amount of offerings that are um, driven from the work that's being done from deep lear- in deep learning and related uh, wanted to uh, mention about bots. Yeah, bots definitely. are just becoming, I mean, and it's, uh, you know, bots are generally um, just a marriage between robotics and um, machine learning or artificial intelligence. Um, but we actually, <laughs> we bought our first bot for our house, uh, I think two weeks ago, a cleaning. Oh, wow. Yeah, to clean because we have a villa with lots of windows and it cleans the windows. And so we would have to have cleaners come less often. And um, yeah, they've got reliable bots um, that can now clean your windows and 
you know, we're going to start having more and more like house cleaning bots and bots that can do this and that. And I think that it's just going to be a lot more um, in, in the next 12 to 18 months. It's going to be a continuation of all of the artificial intelligence driven innovations like these bots, like the self-driving cars, all of the things that machine learning, machine learning um, in action and machine learning in, with robotics I think we're just going to see more and more of that. And so that's a good thing because no one likes to wash windows. But then, you know, it's also a bad thing. Um, when we got this bot, I thought about, because my nanny, her daughter does our windows. And right. I thought, uh, you know, like, she's not going to be able to do our windows if we have the bot. And what will she do? So, you know, it's, you know, it's, I think the more automation comes in and cuts out jobs, the more it's going to be like a lingering concern, either like, oh, will I have a job or, you know, feeling bad because someone else doesn't have work because the bots, you know, do a better job just because they're bots. And I think um, data is taking us in that direction. I think everyone pretty much feels it and knows it, too. It's an, it's an interesting quandary, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, I've, I've got a similar challenge in that. Uh, you know, looking at different things that we use around just day to day. Occasionally, I do have pause or, or cause for pause. That is a reason for pause to stop and say, "Should I go down this route?" Because is it going to do someone else a job? But it's in the example of your your nanny's daughter and, and cleaning the window. I suspect that what you'll find is that the menial job of cleaning the window now will be transposed with something else that's a lot more interesting, and you you'll probably still have the same spend on that individual doing something a bit more interesting, mm. and they'll elevate further up the the food chain, as it were. Right? Um, that's and, true. Yeah, I'm finding I'm spending more money now on humans. Uh, the more technology ah. I buy, it's it's quirky, um, and and it 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 caught me off guard because I had scenarios where you know, uh, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but there are a number of things like your window cleaning, but where we started looking at technology to do things, whether it's sensors or software to automate things, and what I found was that I was using humans for less menial and and just mind-numbingly boring stuff. But I'm still actually spending the same, if not more, money on those humans to do slightly more interesting and fun things. And they were a lot happier as a result, which was kind of interesting. So I've got to spend a bit more time thinking about what that means long term. But I like the... That's a nice perspective. I like that a lot. Well, because, you know, if we think about you and I, for example, you know, we sort of think, well, we're fairly high up in the food chain in what we do day to day. I'm more of an engineering background, but you're probably more of a mathematical statistical background. But at the end of the day, we're still talking about some of the, you know, the top end of the food chain of folk who've got jobs that are going to be long lasting. But I do worry about the impact of that, particularly when we think about, you know, it's when you mentioned bots and immediately triggered this sort of thought between, the the two sides of the coin and that is you've got your physical bot that's running around cleaning your windows but you've also potentially got robotic process automation styled bots or um you know i don't think siri or google's uh uh, ai is at that point yet but at some point i suspect we'll have software bots that'll do really cool things for us i wish they'd get here faster um, because i would certainly (laughs) use them um, but I know that, you know, the robotic process automation, uh, RPA, I mean, we've been using it for doing things like screen scraping, but it's getting much better at form filling and, and so forth. And Yeah, it's uh, great stuff. You know, I, I love it when my browser fills in a form securely for me, but I wish it would then do all the typing as well. Um, <laughs> it, and it was interesting, your comment around TensorFlow, and I think, you know, there's a number of platforms like that. But I really love, big fan of TensorFlow. I love the fact that in the, in the design and the architecture of TensorFlow, each of the nodes in the graph are effectively little you know, operations in their own sense. And so you've got this 
mathematical business logic built into the graph at each node level and, and sort of when you build a flow as data is moving around that flow it can it, it moves in different ways depending on the type of data and the reason the data is there and the time and date and so forth i love the idea that in the next 12 or 18 months we're going to go from um building what i call data swamps because i think a lot of people are just building these data lakes that just end up being a, a massive quagmire of unknown stuff that we'll never get to and hopefully we'll just delete at some point i think right. we, i think we can get you know look at cars you know autonomous vehicles i was reading thinking the other day i think it was tesla put out a paper or something but someone published a paper saying that there are autonomous vehicle producers like 4.5 petabytes of raw data a day and sonar and lidar and wi-fi etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> i was like how the hell are we going to store that but the reality is we're not going to store it are we we're just going to process it and just keep metadata and, and whatever we need for tracking and so forth well, I like the whole thing, you know, with the IoT technologies and the 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 um, the built-in applications on the IoT devices, which have a trigger. You know, they can run some applications on device, and then if it, a certain threshold is met, then the data is sent back up to the command center, and that makes a lot of sense. Like, don't collect everything, but then just don't throw everything away. At least automate some sort, you know, a filter of what to keep. Yeah, I think a few people have been tr struggling to get a, a coinage for it. Cisco came up with sort of um, fog computing, which I, I, I really don't like yeah. a lot. I think a number of companies uh, have, have this concept of edge analytics. I don't know that we necessarily have a coinage that suits it yet, but I, I, I totally agree with you in that we're going to have to move to where the data is. I, I, I had this phrase a while ago that I didn't create. I borrowed it from someone, but I can't find the source of it, unfortunately, to quote them. But it was around this idea of the gravity of data. And when we think about how planets are formed, for example, and, and you know, particles of dust and dirt accrete and eventually end up with these, these you know, planets, basically, and planets end up with gravity and we can stand on the surface and not get flung off into space. I often think about um, data in that sense, and I look for where's the center of gravity on a particular data set, and I look at whether I need to put my intelligence and engineering and business logic at the center of that universe of data, or whether I need to put it at the edge, and, 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 and oftentimes it's a bit of both, right? Um, mm. We're going to have to put some smarts in the cars as they move around, but as you said, and sometimes we're going to have to take it back to a command center and, and keep it there for various reasons, or even share it. Um, now, before we wrap up, I've got... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go. I was just going to say, I think it all comes back to like, when you're saying all this, it just reminds me of an analogy my, my, one of my systems, my systems design teacher said was like, don't get so caught looking at the bark of the trees that you can't see your way out of the forest. And that I made like so that. much sense to me. Yeah. Like every single problem that we're trying to solve it, the, the, whatever solution we build has to be centered around solving that problem. It's so easy with all of this data and all of these interesting things we can find out to get distracted, but like, that's just never going to work. It has to be, you know, um, solution centered. Like every approach needs to be centered, targeted, laser targeted on what is our objective here. I like that. Actually, um, on a call this morning with IBM's team around the um, event coming up next week in Munich, um, Hillary Mason made a really great comment along those lines as well that I, I made a note of, and that is that she said a lot of data science is not about the technology. It's not always a technical problem. It's a it's a people thing or it's a, a business thing, and you're oftentimes trying to understand the data and the the cause of the source of the data and, and the problem you're solving for the business, and the technology comes after that, whereas I think a lot of a lot of uh, noise we're hearing around the place versus the signal, particularly in media and, and the great unwashed media who really don't understand what they're talking about and, and data science, talk about the technology aspects or the brands or the makes and models and manufacturers and they forget that 
at the end of the day, it's about people. It's about things that people want to do and, and people inside companies or consumers or people that want the celebrity experience for some reason and that that data just follows them or the you know because I, I i have this view that data only comes from two places it's either we create it from afresh or we or we capture it from somewhere um i, I think they're the only two ways that data come about you either create it or you capture it um but when you think about some of the challenges that we face i i certainly like the idea that they're not always technical problems. They're, they're invariably not technical problems. Technology often gets in the way. I like your bark versus the tree thing. It's a very much a Burnham Wood Shakespearean quote, uh, 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 tweaked in many ways, um, and not being able to see the wood for the trees, right? Um, that leads me into the sort of my, my favourite pun that I've been playing with, and that is at what's on the horizon, um, and the IBM folk are going to love that one. Um, for you personally... You are a true nerd, aren't you, Des? Oh, absolutely, and I'm very proud of it. Um, yeah, and you're so goofy. It's really refreshing, actually. <laughs> I'm such a serious person, and every time I come across you on Twitter, I'm like, I just feel like a sense of relief because you're just witty. <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Thank you. I do try. Um What's on the horizon for you personally? So, I mean, you've, you've got an amazing background, uh, you know, just a huge fan of what you do. Uh, I love the fact that you seem to give 10 times more than you take from the universe. Um, what's coming up for you personally? I mean, you know, obviously we're going to be catching up in a week's time at Munich at, uh, at the event with the, the IBM team and this whole thing around, um, you know, machine learning and so forth and, and the data science challenge uh, as far as the fast track your data event on, on June the 22nd goes in Munich. But where where is Lillian Pearson in, in 12 to 18 months and where would you like to see yourself? Where do you think you'll be and, and what sort of fun challenges would you like to take on the next year or so? Nice. Um, actually, okay, so now that you phrased the question, like um, when I saw this question originally, I thought, okay, well, I'm doing this and that and this and that. And it's true. I have a deep learning course I'm coming out with and um, – uh, natural language processing course and chatbot course and marketing data science marketing course. How do people find out about those just to, to get them? Okay. A yeah. Plug? So those are all tell on me, LinkedIn tell me more learning. About those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have a recommendation systems course that's coming out in a few weeks. I've got a bunch of courses I, I've been working on with them. And so that's, um, I'm going to continue doing that. I really like that work. It's when, fun. when do they come and, out? When are they available? Um, okay. So, the deep learning course should be out in October. The recommendation systems course is coming out in July. And then um, natural language processing is going to be January. So, and then chatbots next, next year. Um, and I'm coaching and I also have like live training, training events. I do all over, <laughs> all over the place, mostly in Dubai. Yeah. So it's fun, but really, I really want to get like, I want to get all have so many online courses and none of them are up right now for my brand because I'm wanting to make them, you know, these amazing, just orchestrate this amazing experience for all the learners. And um, I'd like in 12 to 18 months, I'd like to have all of my courses up and um, I don't know, just have everything kind of streamlined for my business where I could spend more time on consulting work. Right. And less time on product develop, like building courses. I think that's in 12 or 18 months, that's where I'd like to be. You, you've right? got, I'm working more. You've got quite you a know, collection of um, courses already, though, from memory. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but off the top of my head, I mean, you've got, you've got 
is it seven or eight? You've got data science analytics. You've got Python data science recommendation systems. Uh, you, you've got intros to like data science and R. You've got some stuff on deep learning and natural language processing. Um, but I think some of these are, are future uh, times, are they? Are, are they all online now? Yeah, or? some of yeah. them are future. They're going to come out like in the next 12 or 18 months. And okay. then some of them, I have a lot of courses that are just, I took the, everything down because as I've like created more courses, I've learned more about um, about um, instructional design right. and about how to make an experience for the learner. And so I really just, you know, I felt like I wanted to redo my courses to make them better. So I took everything down and it's just been like, you know, a lot of content development for a long time and, and I love it, but I'm ready to do some more consulting work. And I think like it's going to take a while to get there where I'm have things kind of tidied away, but maybe in 12 or 18 months. Yeah. I can be doing more consulting work. I suspect, and less content development. I suspect yeah. I'm going to find some reasons to get you to come to Australia. Um, it's, uh, is there a particular uh, area in, uh, that you want to consult into? Are there are there particular niche verticals around the markets? I mean, is it in banking and wealth management, and finance, or aged care and marketing. health and so forth? Marketing, yeah, yeah, marketing. I'm mostly marketing. interested in marketing. Yeah, direct marketing and just uh, marketing in general. And uh, TVC, print, radio, digital, online, any particular space in marketing there, just out of interest? I think digital and online. Right. Yeah. It's in your DNA. Well, look, it's, <laughs> it's been yeah, an Yeah, I think it's in uh, your DNA also. <laughs> oh, it is definitely in my DNA. And in fact, um, I like to rewrite my DNA every 18 months, so I'm still relevant. Um, look, we could speak for hours, but we're coming up on the hour now, and, and I, I'm, I know that it's getting very late there, and it's about quarter past one here in the morning in Sydney. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up there, but I just wanted to say a big thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate the fact that you were able to jump in the studio with me uh, at, at very short notice. You, I think it was less than uh, 60 minutes that you pinged me back uh, in both a DM on Twitter and an email, and thank you so much for that. And It's, it's been great fun. I look forward to meeting in person and finally in, in Munich. And uh, I'd love to do a follow-up one after the event and just get your thoughts on the event itself. Um, but look, thanks so much for your time and I've really, really appreciated it and hopefully you've had some fun as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me, Daz. Oh, not at all. It. And we'll do it again soon. Uh, Lillian Pearson, just a quick last plug for your website. Uh, your um, website is data-mania.com. People can follow you mm -hmm. on Twitter as uh, Big Data Gal. Uh, and is there anywhere else that you want people to find you uh, to, to find about your website and your business and your online courses? So I'm on LinkedIn at Lillian Pearson and I'm on Instagram at Big Data Gal. But I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so, yeah, mostly I just um, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and uh, my blog. Perfect. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Folks, we're going to wrap it up there. It's been great fun and I look forward to doing it again with you soon. Thank you, Des. Cheers.